I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Our prayer tonight is going to be given by one Roger Keg, all the way out from Texas. Take it away, Brother Keg. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this ministry. Lord, just open the eyes of the Mormon people that they might know your son and know that he has done it all, that everything has been finished because of him. And all we have to do is live in him, and he will live in us, and we will know that we are sinners, but we are in him, so therefore there is no condemnation in Christ. Amen, Lord. Amen. Hey, uh, listen, just get a, I just got a chance to meet Roger. And uh, he told me some interesting things that you're doing out there in Texas, Garland, Texas, right? Correct. And uh, what I really loved what he had to say about uh, uh, institutional church, about manipulation. Why don't you just tell the audience what you're doing and sure. how it happened? Well, we were in. Uh, we came out of the Mormon Church in, in uh, 1983, and we became Baptist. And I didn't think I'd come out of the Mormon Church. Uh, there was no temple, there were a lot of other things, but people were basically there to show off their new cars and their Sunday best clothes. And uh, there was not much of a relationship there. We stayed there a couple of years, and uh, then we moved on to a mega church, and we found this pretty much the same thing. As a matter of fact, when we left, oh, what, what about 10 years ago or more, uh, we, were, we are still receiving mail from that church. They don't even know we left. <laughs> We got into a little, uh, a, a little non-denominational church, and I thought that I'd found the place. And it was a place for me uh, for about three, for two years. Uh, Linda, it took three years. Um, and we found out that the pastor wasn't who he said he was every Sunday. He would say that I'm building Christ's kingdom, but he was really building his own kingdom. And uh, he became very controlling. Our son was trying to uh, get married to a, a Lutheran young lady. He didn't like that. He wanted her, uh, him to marry one of the girls from the church and uh, had his roommate spying on him oh, because goodness. he worked nights. And, you know, they got together late at night, so they must be fornicating. Oh. So uh, we, uh, of course, quickly exited that church. About a year earlier, I had come across... Uh, a, uh, through an ad on a radio talk radio station, Simple Church, uh, they were offering this book uh, by the Dales down in Austin uh, about home church. So we uh, became, we started looking for a home church uh, after this incident with our son. We both read that book. Linda wasn't ready. She loved that little church we were in. And so I went along with that and trusted the Lord to take care of it. He did within a year. And uh, so we uh, started going to house church. We found out that house church, a lot of times, not all of them, but many of them is, honey, I shrunk to church. <laughs> and there's always pastors there that are going to tell you uh, about different doctrines and things that you really need to have. And uh, a lot of times those doctrines aren't biblical. Uh, so I uh, started reading books by an author 
Frank Viola, and uh, he did a whole series of books called The Rechurch um, series, Pagan Christianity, The Roots of the of the, of the Church. I read every one of those bo books, uh, Finding Organic Church um, and Reimagining the Church, uh, the, the uh, untold story of the first century church, which gave me a vision of what the first century church was like, not that we can re recreate it, we can't. We're in a different culture. But uh, at the end of the Finding Organic Church, because there was nothing like this in the Dallas area, um, I, I did what Frank suggested, I prayed. And uh, I Googled uh, organic church because I got an image of the Google logo of all crazy things, and uh, Dallas, and it took me right to a web page where two, uh, it was an online community for organic church seekers, and they lived in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a young lady and a young gentleman. Uh, of course, I called the young gentleman. and. Uh, we got together, I think it was in 11, uh, at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings and uh, watched the Mavericks uh, playoffs and uh, with the year that they won the championship. And uh, we just decided that uh, three of us decided we'd get together, three couples, and we started uh, meeting in, a, in an organic way, what we thought was organic. That went on for a while, and uh, then there was eventually like 10 or 12 of us, and we got in touch with a, a church planner, Milt uh, Rodriguez, and his wife, Mary, and they came down. They were planning a church in Oklahoma City. They came down and spent a weekend with us that was very rich and wonderful, uh, telling us about this Christ that is so much bigger than what I ever knew in my life. And uh, we then... Uh, said we wanted to have them come and plant a church in Dallas. And we had the right number of people. You know, it was only like 10 to 12. And um, they came and stayed in 13. Was it 13 or 12? I'm talking to my wife down there. <laughs> anyway, we, we've been, it's been three years. Uh, we're in our fourth year now. And uh, he spent five months, uh, him and his wife spent five months with us, and we paid their expenses and, and took care of them, like Paul. When he finished, he taught us everything that we needed to know. He laid a foundation of Christ, and, that, and Christ only. And uh, then uh, we um, started meeting, and we had started having all kinds of problems couldn't get along and some people didn't want children in the in the group and some people said there's no other way than to have children in our group and uh, so we learned a lot some of those people came in with their what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls wish dreams <laughs> that, that uh, they wanted uh, to make the church the way they thought it should be which means that they become the pastor or an elder we don't have any elders because it's too dangerous to have elders because when you give somebody a, a uh, title, it goes to their head and the power corrupts. And uh, so uh, we've been in a meeting, uh, there's about 14 of us. We've had some people come and go and we always love them when they leave and we love them when they come. And uh, we have no uh, dogma or other than, the only thing we have is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the center of our group. Mm. And he is present in every one of our meetings. Mm. And it's amazing to see, you know, people tell me, you can't do that, it'll be chaos. Mm. You gotta have a leader, you gotta have an elder. Mm. We don't have any, we're a non-hierarchical group, mm. and it, it just it flows wonderfully. You can tell the spirit coming down from heaven into our group and circulating the living water. And uh, so that's pretty much uh, where we are. Hey, I, uh, I, I really am grateful that you came and shared that. And the reason is, I think this, we, they have for years talked about the house church being the future. And what happens is mega churches or large churches, they do a form of house churching during the week. But then you go back to the mega church and get instruction. You go back during the week, and that's the way they've kind of bridged that. But I think this is the future. I think this is the future relative to government. I think it's the future relative to the body to get to the basics of believers, non-hierarchical. I Amen. love that. No titles. I love that. Uh, even pastor. I mean, really, teacher, even whatever. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that people all over this nation and world start doing that. And people start their own 
uh, gatherings in their in their homes and no institution paying up to the top just preach Christ amen Love Amen. it, brother. And no manipulation. No manipulation. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank I really you. appreciate it, Roger. Thank you. All right. And with that, how about a moment from Zawud? That first step is a doozy. Just go into it, I am told. This was brought to my attention by our friend Carlos in Arizona. Listen to this. Uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus was on earth and teaching in Matthew 13. Who was Jesus teaching? He was teaching Jews, all Jews, nothing but Jews. And these Jews were living at a time when their age was wrapping up. This age was wrapping up. Why was it wrapping up? Because their promised Messiah had come. As that had been foretold, he was there. They could receive him or they could reject him. John the Baptist was there to prepare the way for him. And he came preaching a very, very um, apocalyptic message. Just think about it. He said, repent now for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase in the Greek, at hand, means it's coming along. It's coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember? And remember when John the Baptist said, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not fruit is hewn down and is cast into the fire. Okay? So in Matthew 13, the setting being... At, this is the coming of the Messiah. It's the wrapping up of the age. John the Baptist says the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Jesus says, let me tell you another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. Then echoing John the Baptist's message to the Jews of that day, Jesus adds to his parable. And I'm going to quote from the Greek translation. So shall it be in the end, the full end of this age. That's the Greek way to say. So shall it be at the full end of this age. The messengers shall come forth and separate the evil out from the midst of the righteous and shall cast them in the furnace of fire and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus taught in the context of what I'm saying. The year was probably around 2930 AD. Later, after a whole bunch of very descriptive teachings that this temple is not going to stand, he said this to the Jews, how will you escape the judgment of that fiery pit called Gehenna over there in the valley of Hinnom? He's preaching to them. His disciples came to him and said, tell us, when will these things be? And they said, and what will be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? That's what it says, the end of the age, not the end of the world. And Jesus, in his description, said that all that he had predicted, he gave a big description of how to tell, he said it would happen within a generation. In biblical terms, that's 40 years. Uh, as foretold by him, 40 years later, that axe was lifted and it hit the root of that tree. That tree was hewn down. And a million plus Jews lost their lives as if God had chopped down that age and blood ran and Jesus' words about the ultimate absolute end of their age absolutely came true, okay? For nearly 2,000 years, all the way back to this very day, all the way up to this very day, pastors and preachers and popes and priests pick up the Bible and they read from the King James and they will say, and Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind. And the pastor will say, that's what's happening to this very day. Folks, it's the gleaning of the fields. There's some who are being brought into the net and some are good fish. They're kept. Some are bad fish. They're being thrown out. And then they'll read Jesus say, which when it was full of the net, they drew to shore, sat down and gathered the good, the believers in Christ, into vessels, but cast the bad away. And they'll say, now, did you catch that? Listen, listen what Jesus says next. They will say, 
so shall it be, King James, at the end of the world. They will take that, they'll ignore the context of what Jesus said, of what John the Baptist said. They'll ignore the context of why he said it. They'll ignore the indestruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is a historical monument. They'll ignore that, and they'll read the King James that took the end of the age and translated it to the end of the world. And they will read, and so shall it be at the end of the world. The angels will come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. And for people who don't believe in a burning hell, they'll say, what does Jesus say next? He says, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And that is how the Bible is preached, has been preached since it's been available, 1500, 1530. What has happened here, in my opinion, should not be. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a judgment, and I'm not saying that the righteous and the, and the evil won't be judged after this life. And I'm not saying even that Jesus isn't going to come back. That if people believe that, that's fine. But I'm saying let's preach it for what it says and what it means for that time and that day. First, the content of the Bible is read and taught as if Jesus is talking to us. Nowhere is that implied. Nowhere in the Bible is that implied. He was not. He was talking to Jews and Jews alone about their day and their age. Second, Jesus did not, he did not, did not, did not say, so shall it be at the end of the world. He did not say that. If you look at any, any interlinear translation, you will see, so shall it be at the end of this age. That's what the Lord said, okay? He did not, and therefore, so shall be the end of the age of the Jew. And he's warning them, okay? When John said the axe was laid at the root of the Jewish tree, it was coming down, John told them, get prepared by repenting, you Jews. And, and he was there to make a way for the Messiah who'd come to save them. Listen, save them from what? You got to ask that question. He came to save them from physical obliteration. You have to understand that. He came to save us from spiritual obliteration, but he came to save them from physical destruction. That, because they were in an economy of you obey, you'll be blessed. You disobey, you'll be cursed. And so listen, come and I am here. I'm your Messiah. I will save you. Now, did spiritual salvation come along with that? Of course it did. But primarily, it was to keep them from being wiped out. Receive me as your king. I will be your spiritual king. Not the one who will emancipate you from Rome, but they didn't. So, additionally, nowhere anywhere does the Bible tell us that there is a dual application in his message to those Jews at that time. In other words, the Bible doesn't say, quote, these words Jesus spake to the Jews, but they will also have direct and literal application to the world for thousands of years to come. We don't have passages that say that. All we have is a book that was printed, and I love that book, but it came to us when the printing press came, and we read it, and now we say, this is talking about us, and we've interpreted that. The text doesn't say it. Uh, it's really crazy thinking of religious zealots to be preaching this as a message for the end of the world. Finally, with regard to the fiery judgment that Jesus describes for the bad fish in his narrative. He says, so shall it be at the end of this age. The angels will come forth, sever the wicked from among the just, cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There was wailing and gnashing of teeth, according to Josephus beyond anything the world has ever seen. I believe this is very emblematic speech of God's judgment upon those who rejected his son, that it took place in the lake of fire. And now, according to 1 Corinthians 15, you may disagree with that, but the way I see 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus has had the victory over all things. He has had the victory, including what is called the second death. I don't believe he only has victory over the first death. I believe Jesus has had victory over all death and that God is now all in all. And so to assign Jesus' words to an afterlife eternal future of all who die without him is not contextual. It's not biblical. It takes liberty and license where it hasn't been given by the text and it assigns it to us 
spiritually when it was definitely purposeful and pointed to the Jews physically. Does it have application? I believe it does spiritually, but it doesn't, we can't use the Bible to say it does. And, and, and maybe that's not that big of a point to you, but it is to me. And with that, how about a moment from the Board of Direction? All right. Within the atheist community and naysayers and critics of the faith, there's often a conversation about how God is not fair. He isn't fair because he, he doesn't set us all up in the same circumstance to know him. Uh, and so everybody doesn't have an equal chance to be saved. I, I hear about this. Uh, the suggestion is that a person who is born to orthodox Islamic parents in Afghanistan does not have the same chance to know Jesus as a kid born in a Southern Baptist home. So therefore, there's this built-in destiny of all people that's brought up. People are destined for hell because God does not let everybody experience the same thing. And as a means to explain why some are born into homes of Christian families and some are born into homes of atheists or radical Islam or whatever, uh, we have come up with all kinds of very limited ways to understand it. And what we've said is like, and I remember what we've said is if, if a person doesn't hear of Jesus and they die without hearing of Jesus, uh, they go to hell forever and ever and ever. And so they say that, 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 that radical Islam kid who was born to radical Islam parents, he grows up, he never hears Jesus. And then the Christians will say, and we know God will have a way to reach them and has for the past 2000 years. He's had a way to reach them and bring them to him for them to claim Jesus' name while they're alive, but if they don't, it's bye-bye, fathead. So, um, I think these things have been inferior. I don't think they're a superior way to understand God. And while what I'm about to illustrate on our board of direction is a theory of mine, it's a theory, uh, understand that, I think it's a good theory, all right? So let me explain it. From believers, we often hear limiting stuff like, well, if a person doesn't say Jesus before they die, they burn in hell forever. And we say, well, what if they have uh, never, ever even heard of him? In the, in the 1650s, there's a guy born in, in Africa, and he, he's, that's burning hell. What if they were born to parents who are Buddhists and they died when they were nine? Burning hell. Uh, and, and, and so could it be that God is in control of all this stuff, and brings all people around to him, and I'm not preaching universalism, Jesus Christ is the only way. So get that straight, not all roads lead to heaven, but could it be that God, he uses ways that are unfathomable to us, and we have filled in that gap with stuff that's fathomable and made a mistake. So, I was talking about the possibilities with my daughter Delaney the other day, and we were talking about, you know, what if God, not just here on this earth, but after this life, too, possibly, we don't, you know, but even in the great beyond, takes every single person's life circumstances into full account. What if God takes every individual's parents into account? Their intelligence, their weaknesses, their strengths, their proclivities, their experiences, their trials, their blessings, the geography in which they grew up, the culture they grew up, their temperament, their education, their fears, their mistakes, their sorrows, their injustices, their accidents, their illnesses, even their diet, even the media influences upon them. And he puts them on a grand scale. And he says, this is that individual's sum total of human experience. I understand it fully. And he has some sort of built-in system that after he assesses all that, he shines a perfectly just amount of light upon each individual to know him in an equal way as everybody else. So what I mean by that is let's say that somebody here is born with very, very little uh, access. We could say this person is uh, born with, he's a truth seeker. And you can see he's taller and he's closer to God. So maybe God shines just a little tiny bit of his light to that truth seeker because he's had every opportunity given to him by parents and everything else to know Christ. And God says, this is the amount that will fairly reach you. 
And maybe over here to this little guy, or this one, this guy has really not had much of a chance to know the true and loving living God. So let's say he was born to Five Point Calvinist family. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not really. But, or uh, let's say that, that he's an atheist, okay? Parents and all sorts of things. God, you know, he pours down tons of light to that one to bring him up, to help him. God use his light to bring him. And then it's commensurate with everybody else. This guy gets, you know, that much. And this one gets quite a bit more. And, and uh, Suzanne's friend over here, uh, he's, he's got a lot of problems with the flesh. And so God says, you know, this is Sean, really. And, and so God says, I'm going to give him quite a bit more, even though he's pretty tall. He's had a lot of opportunities. His parents were Baptists, but his flesh is, you know, God... We, 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 we say these things as if it's up to us. You know, no, you're going right to hell when we don't take in the experiences and we don't take any of that into account. And I think that's just another way to consider as a theory that possibly God is better than we think. And he's able to do things better than we are able to construct them. And with that, let's get into our topic tonight, which is the beginning, part one of creation. All right, let's start off with a simple discussion that's really not so simple at all. What does the Bible and then what do the LDS mean when they speak of God creating? Uh, let me introduce you to two key terms, which many of you are familiar with. Creatio, creatio ex materia and creatio ex nihilo. Okay, creatio ex materia means created out of material, and creatio ex nihilo means created out of nothing, all right? Now, the LDS view, as we mentioned a few weeks back, is based on the belief that matter, anything that's material, is eternal. It cannot be created nor destroyed even by God. Understand that. In other words, they believe that God cannot create something out of nothing. Therefore, material substance is an eternal principle and has always existed. And anything that can be considered real and true is material. It is, there's no such thing as immaterial materiality. There's no such thing as spirit, in other words, that is not material. In Mormonism, no, no, no. Everything matter, okay? We also mentioned that this thinking was not original to the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, uh, but came directly from thinkers of the 1700s of the Age of Enlightenment. They are the ones who stepped away from uh, immateriality and said, no, everything has to be material. In my estimation, I, I'm not too dogmatic on many things, but in my estimation, this step is a slippery slope to godlessness. Godlessness. Uh, I say this because if we can suppose that all material has always existed, we're one step away from removing the need for God at all. If you can say material has always been, we are just one step, just a step away from saying God's not even needed. Material will do its own thing. That's what Marx did with his dialectical materialism. That's what Marx moved into. He moved from being a believer, actually from believers' parents, talk about that. He moved from that to becoming a, uh, a materialist, a consummate. So all God would be, would be a being that takes eternally existing matter and forms it into something else. Uh, the traditionally accepted Christian view today is that of creatio, ex nihilo, uh, that God created everything out of nothing. There is certainly passages in the New Testament to support this. Um, but what are the historical origins of the view of creation? It was common in uh, ancient Near East to, sp to speak of creation as a result of creatio ex materia. Okay, just stay with me. Before we started teaching about creatio ex nihilo, out of nothing, 
there was a very profound thought among the Jews, early Jews, that God created out of something. Unless we admit that, we're just being foolish. We are, we are trying to argue from a point that is inferior, and we will lose people who know better. They'll say, that's not true. They'll look at Barach. They'll look at all these words from the Hebrew, and they'll say, no, 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 it means this, and we'll do all that. But in, if you look at the, the scholars who look and study ancient Hebrew and know it, they'll say, creatio ex nihilo did not exist among the Jews. They thought that God created from something that was in existence. According to E. Lovely, that's his real name, and H.J. Sorensen, who wrote the New Catholic Encyclopedia, few modern scholars hold that creation out of nothing is taught in the Old Testament. The abstract notion of nothing does not seem to have been reached by the Israelite mind at that time, end quote. Okay? So they didn't understand it. That's fine. Now listen, just because the Old Testament understanding of creation was ex materia, that God did it out of something or substance, does not in the least mean that the view was right. They didn't have a, a corner on the truth. That didn't mean that their view was absolutely correct. We know God revealed to them over the process of time new truths as they went. That mat it doesn't mean that matter has always existed, as the Age of Enlightenment uh, reasoners said. And it doesn't mean that the material that God used to create wasn't created out of nothing in the first place. You have to understand that. Where did the material originally come from? From God. Then God, did he take that material and create the earth? Sure. Just the idea of creation of this world and the cosmos was from ex materia, from material. But it doesn't mean that God didn't create that material in the beginning. And that's what the Christian view is. So in other words, just because God used pre-existing material to create the universe does not mean that he couldn't have created that material from nothing. So that's, a really, that's really simple. To say God does not have the capacity to create things from nothing, therefore everything that is material has always existed, places everybody in the hands of either the Age of Enlightenment thinkers or Mormons. That's where you're going to be. You're going to become a semi-borderline, getting close to atheism, or you're going to be a Mormon. That's how close that, that religion is to atheism. They're consummate materialists. And because they view everything in such materialist terms, they are not far away from being, we don't really need God. And when you think about it, when they're going to become gods on their own, and Jesus is elder brother, and Heavenly Father is Papa, you know, all that stuff. Now it's starting to make sense. This is the connecting link that makes them so non-Christian. This is the connecting link that gives the foundation for all those other things they teach that seem so crazy to us. So, bottom line, the Bible, and I would conclude, therefore, God himself doesn't clearly address the origin of matter. In the New Testament, we're going to show you, there are allusions, which I'm going to get to, but there's no reason for us to dogmatically state whether this earth pre-existed materially or not. I don't think it's an argument we need to debate. Because we can, what we, but I do think an argument is we can say God did create everything originally, everything, out of nothing. You have to go that route, otherwise you're going to go the other route, the LDS or the atheist. Now, it wasn't until the Hellenistic, the Greeks, started to influence Judaism that the Jews started to speak about creatio ex nihilo. That was when it started happening. Um, and in one of the first references to it in what is quasi-scripture today for us, Second Maccabees says, I implore you, my child, observe heaven and earth, Consider all that is in them and acknowledge that God made them out of what did not exist. This is one of the first concrete references to creatio ex nihilo. It's from the book of Maccabees, uh, which is an apocryphal book. Now, doesn't mean they can't have truth in them. And it may be true, it may not be true. But this is where this, we start to see the Greek influence come upon the Jews to start to say, hey, okay, we get it. He did create everything out of nothing. Uh, one, his name is Leander Keck. He's a professor of biblical theology at Yale Divinity School. He says that by the time we get to the New Testament era, 
The belief that God created out of nothing was common in Hellenistic Judaism. So now we see how we shifted from them really not knowing to suddenly the Jews are accepting creatio ex nihilo. All right. Charles Harrell uh, says, scholars are doubtful, therefore, that New Testament writers would have held, or at least universally held, a belief in creatia ex materia, that God created the universe out of something that preexisted. By that time, the Christians, the apostles, Jesus, they were informed. I would say, I would say by that time, they knew. And was it Greek influence that helped them know? Sure. You know, just like science helps us know that certain penicillins will kill certain bacteria to us today. They knew from, their, from the, the, the spirit and from the knowledge given them, hey, wait, this ex materia stuff is not how it was. That's a pagan thought. Now we have ex nihilo. Keck observes that there are several intimations in scripture about creatio ex nihilo. You ready? Let me give you, let me give you four. John 1, 3. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so right there, you shut the door on creatio ex materia. Uh, Ephesians 3, 9, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which is from the beginning of the world, hath been hidden God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. The last two are biggies. Colossians 1, 16, 17, For by him were all things created that are in heaven. So now we're talking about a different realm that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's getting pretty creatio ex nihilo. That is really laying it down. And then Paul in Romans 4.17 gives us the biggest, and that is, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, ready, and calleth into existence those things which be not as though they were. Calls into existence those things which are not as if they were. That is one of the best passages in the New Testament to say, Forget about this LDS stuff about everything being material and, nothing, and material always existing and God can't create material out of nothing and all that fall to all. It's not scriptural. We have the word giving us that. Do you trust it? So from the apostolic writings to the idea of creatio ex nihilo, according to theological historian Alistair McGrath, this moved the early church firmly in the idea of creatio ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing. The 1647, we're jumping out a number of years, Westminster Confession of Faith says, it pleased God in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein. And this view has more or less become the standard of all evangelical Christians today. Christians today. It happens to be the one, of the one of the views. However it came about historically, I am really grateful for because it's a view that I think cannot be reasonably challenged without causing the greatest amount of destruction against the faith. When, when we can allow ourselves to believe that God can't create matter, and it's a huge black dividing line between Mormonism and Christianity, between atheists and Bible-believing Christians. Creatio ex materia, creatio ex nihilo, these are, that's a major, major difference. And if you dabble with those, you could find, your, find yourself in some difficulty. Initially, Mormon doctrine went hand in hand with the Christian belief of God created everything by Christ, creatio ex nihilo. That's how Mormonism started with almost everything it did. The Book of Mormon was essentially a plagiarized book of the Bible, and it essentially went along. And in Jacob 4.9, uh, we read the Mormon doctrine where God brought everything into existence by speaking. That's a very Christian view, that he spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's a very Christian view. Next week, we're going to get in and we're going to talk about how Smith, as he was wont to do, morphed. He de-evolved away from the Christian stance of creatio ex nihilo, and he then got, and we'll talk about how he arrived at that point when we continue our discussion 
of creation next week. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. We have Ryan in Woodbridge, Virginia waiting. Before we go to Ryan, let's take a look at this spot and we'll get back to his call. All right, let's go to Ryan in Virginia on line one. Ryan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing great, man. I have seen most of your like uh, most of your shows, and also I listen to Sandra Tanner. And thank you very much for whatever you guys are doing so far. And thank you, I really appreciate it. Uh, Sean, I have got like uh, two questions. A uh, little story about me. I was born into Roman Catholic but uh, converted into Mormonism like two years back. But when I got converted, they didn't tell us a lot of issues and a lot of things to the new convert people. Uh, can you briefly educate me? Like, I know the, the blacks were or not ordained in the priesthood until 1978, but um, are, they do have still the racist doctrine in the Book of Mormon. So my question is like, uh, I mean, is the are the people generally... Uh, in the LDS community, are they still racist or no? And one of the questions I have, I asked even my bishop, he didn't say yes and he didn't say no. I asked him like, uh, I mean, does the general authority in the LDS church, do they get paid any money or no? Okay, so uh, a couple things. First, your first point. Uh, Mormonism, uh, they will use the idea of line upon line, precept upon precept. You don't mm -hmm. give a dog, uh, you don't cast your pearls before swine, you give milk before mm -hmm. meat. And so they believe yes. you need to grow in the gospel. And, yes. and so that's what's happening. The missionaries give you the fundamentals, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Spirit. And then slowly after you've been involved and paid tithing and and give up your kids, starting them to believe everything, they start to drop the heavier stuff on you, and uh, thinkers will say, wait a second, this is baloney, and non-thinkers either don't listen and don't care, and they just like the church, and they continue on, or they embrace it fully. So that's kind of how it works. It's a system that's not really honest, because the missionaries knocking on the door, they tell you a story that sounds pretty good, but in reality, it turns out to be quite anti-Christian, really, in the end, um, Ryan. The other question was, what was it again? Uh, my other question was, like, uh, does the general authority, like the GA, oh. do they get paid or no? It's a great the question. Because the Mormon claims they don't have a paid clergy, but I really doubt right now. The paid clergy of the Mormon church, uh, the non-paid clergy of the Mormon church, first of all, used to be uh, never spoken because the bishops were paid and so were the stake presidents and everybody at the local level were paid from the tithes. So that goes back until the late 1800s, early 1900s. When they stopped doing that, only the general authorities would get paid, but here's the deal, they pay them in very interesting ways. Uh, for instance, not talking about the apostles, but like the 70 or the mission presidents, what they do is they have them submit receipts for everything you can imagine and they reimburse them. And so what really? they, they're reimbursing them for what we pay for our normal stuff, our cars and our food and our clothing, it's all reimbursed to them. So that's how they get, they kind of toy with that about not being paid. The other thing with the Mormon apostles, they uh, are paid what they consider a, uh, what's the word? Modest stipend. A modest stipend. Yeah, but what they modest. do is they put them on uh, boards 
uh, for corporations and they serve as board of directors. And just for going to a meeting once or twice a year, they gather somewhere 35, 75 grand a year. And that's how, so that's how they're able to manipulate that. They're also writing books. They also have a built-in audience of people when an apostle comes out with a new book. So they, they, they do pay them, but they pay them a lot more through these other means. And uh, so it's not true. And then in terms of a paid clergy, they certainly pay their CES. Uh, those guys are paid for teaching uh, the gospel in their, to the students. So it, the only one who's really not getting paid anymore are the bishops and the stake presidents and the people who lead clergy at that level. Okay. And one of the questions, do they pay tithing also, the general authority and the apostles? You know, I don't okay. know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, okay. I, that would, that's a really good question. Uh, but I don't okay. know if they pay 10% on <laughs> what they're being given from the, from the church. But that's a great question, Ryan. Yes, I did investigate a lot, and I did study a lot of things. Good man. Your, yes, I looked at your interviews. I looked at everything. Even I go to utln.org and everything. Good. And when I looked at everything, I thought to myself, uh, hang on. This is not exactly the same thing as it sounds. Good. But when they come and knock at the door, they just comes up with a story. Hey, we are Christian. We are this. We are that. We have temple. But when I got baptized, they never say anything to me about temple. They never say anything to me about DNC. They never say anything to me about Paul of Great Price. They did say nothing, nothing at all. Wow. They just said, they just said, okay, official, like, oh, the official declaration, like the blacks, blacks were denied Christian for a long time. Yeah. Then after that, we received a revelation. Okay. Then my question was subtle difference. Uh, last week, I asked one of my friends, I said, okay, is it a black skin or dark skin? Because I'm dark skin. I'm not black. I'm, not, I'm from Asia. I said, is it a black skin or dark skin? He said, actually, it's quite complicated. I said, what do you mean it's complicated? He said, it's, it's pretty much unanswerable questions. I said, what do you mean unanswerable questions? That this is a dark skin or black skin were denied? He said, actually, maybe it's black skin. Yeah. I said, okay. And they just comes up with story like, uh, hey, if you do tithing, you'll get these blessings, that oh, blessing, yeah. these, that, and all those things. And they just put too much pressure and too much emphasis on tithing, 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 tithing. Oh, yeah. like, uh, it's like it's like a World Bank. Yeah, like the but World Bank. And that's the material side of the Mormon church. Listen, Ryan, I have a question for you. Where are you no. from originally? Are you Pakistani? No, I'm from Bangladesh, next to Bangladesh. Bangladesh. You know, you have, uh, uh, what, and then what's your heart, what's your belief on, on Jesus? I think that Jesus Christ is my savior because I was born Roman Catholic. Maybe I was not that much practiced to Roman Catholic, but I do have soft heart, and I believe Jesus Christ is my savior and everything. And, but heart. when it came to know about Mormonism, first it sounds good, but then I found out uh -uh, this is not exactly the same good thing as it sounds from outside. Can I challenge you to do something, Ryan? Sure, no problem. Go to God and talk to him about using you to reach the people that are being taken in by the missionaries using your history, your culture, your language, and, and you start your own ministry to try to reach people with the truth. It, you can do it a very short period of time throughout your week, five hours a week or something. Ask God if He put that on your heart because you can be used mightily to keep people like you who are seeking Jesus out from the clutches of this institution. Yes, and that's the thing. And like the Mormon church, it seems to be like a hawk and like a cult. They want to control everything in your life. Yeah. I don't like that point. I don't either. I, know some, I mean, I know some of the aspects of Mormonism is good, like health code, okay, you don't drink, you don't smoke, that's fine, that's fine. But other than that, okay, and um, Mormonism, like, uh, it doesn't sound like a true Christianity anymore. Because my question was, okay, I do understand the church was restored, everything. Then how come Jesus Christ forgot to tell us about tithing? How come Jesus Christ forgot to tell us about the temple? Did, he, did Jesus say anything about that? Like we need to go to temple, get married for eternity? No. Did Jesus say anything that we need to do tithing 10% all the time? No. He did say generous giving. So your, uh, your heart is open to the truth, my friend. Keep pursuing it. Keep reading the word. Thank you so much for your call. Okay, thank you. Hey, wait, wait. Ryan, yeah, go ahead. stay yeah, go on ahead. the line. We want to send you uh, a book, A to Z. Okay, sure. Okay, hold on one second. 
Okay, someone pick up one, and let's go to uh, uh, Carlos in Peoria, Arizona. Carlos, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Thanks for taking my call. I, uh... Hello? I, I think our operators... Uh, okay, I'm put you on hold, Carlos, and go to Ty in Vancouver, Canada. Ty, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hello, Sean. Hi. Um, I just wanted to call and uh, thank you for the shows you've been doing since the beginning. I was a I was born and raised Mormon by a black single mother, and um, I served a two-year mission in Salt Lake City South. Huh. And when I came back to Canada in about 2000, um, 2002 and 2005, my face started getting shaky. And um, I started watching your show in about 2008 when I discovered it on YouTube. And at first I was kind of offended, obviously. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so, so uh, edgy, you know. <laughs> and I started researching myself on utlm.org. And... Um, I don't know, the church has left me for so many years miserable, depressed, angry, and I never had that relationship I was seeking with Jesus Christ. And I have to say that your show enabled me to find the living Christ and to build a relationship with him. Praise and God. To, yeah. Praise God. And, and I just wanted to thank you. That, that's, that's all it is. Uh, I've been watching your show for years. I work graveyards, and um, I normally don't get a chance to call because I'm sleeping when the show is on live. But yeah, um, just wanted to thank you for all of your effort, especially when after I left Mormonism, I was searching for religion, anything to cling myself to. No. And when you started explaining our relationship with, uh, with Jesus Christ without religion, it really freed me, enabled me to live more fully and more completely. And the depression left, the years of depression, years of anxiety, the years of anger, fled and I was just able to live my life fully and completely Praise and God. I still still love your show I lit I download the uh, mp3s listen to on my commutes to and from work and I uh, just wanted to thank you hey Ty thank you so much for that that follow-up and and telling us that we've been able to play a part in your walk with our king uh, it warms my heart to hear your testimony that it's it's uh, your words are uh, uh, separated from religion it's a relationship you have, and it comes through loud and clear to the people sitting here. And, and I just thank you so much for encouraging us through, through your witness, my brother. Thank you. And I, I do have one question, though. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking next year, you know, just, uh, you know, save up some money. If I were to come down there, I sent an email, but I just think it got lost in the, in the, in the clutter. If, uh, if I were to come down next summer, if you would be able to baptize me. Oh, I'd be honored to baptize you. We will, we will hold a special baptism for you in our, in our steel font. We'll fill it with freezing water. And, uh, and yes, anytime, anytime you're here, I'd be honored. In Jesus' name, I'd be honored. That's so awesome. All right. Well, well hopefully for 2017, I'll make a trip to Salt Lake, and uh, we'll get that done. We look forward to it, my brother. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Derek, how's time? All right, Carlos, let's go again. We have two minutes. Okay, quick one. I just wanted to ask a follow-up to what you talked about in the beginning about yeah. the end of ages. Um, is there any scriptural basis for people freaking out when you talk about something like that or like, or it's about non-eternal punishment things? Because I get a lot of dirty looks from family and things, and I'm just wondering what they're basing it off of. They're basing it off that a lot of it of that King James uh, interpretation of eternal and uh, and and all of that. And uh, for some reason, we want to see people suffer forever. And uh, so it's kind of like a King James onlyist attitude. Yes, kind of like that. Very similar. Okay. Okay. That's how I I'm see just it. Trying to my figure brother. out why. So. <laughs> hey, keep your emails coming. They teach me a lot. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye, Carlos. Hey, I want to wrap it up with one thought I have. I was talking to Mary. Would you come up here too? I want to talk about one thing, uh, or I think she went in the bathroom. Uh, come here. Uh, but anyway, uh, I get an email from this guy, and he wants to insist that the Earth is flat. 
and he tells me the earth is flat and it's been proven and there's all this science behind it and he really wants me to understand that and he's watching now probably and and I when I first got it I thought oh you're you're just come on you know the earth is round or and and then I kept thinking about it and thinking and then I thought about it and I thought well how would I how would I prove to this writer that the earth is round and and I could say well I guess I could uh, show him pictures, but then again, he says those are fabricated, possibly, or that there really wasn't Apollo missions and things. And so I thought, how could I prove it? And then I went to, well, I would have to get outside of where the Earth is. I would have to personally get outside of that, be able to see it, and not only from this view, which would look like a disk, I would have to be able to experience going around the Earth, and with math and all the uh, horizontal and, and vertical and all that stuff, see it for myself what exactly the earth is to either prove that the earth is round or agree that the earth is flat. But then I came and I realized, you know what? What really matters, what really matters now to an astronomer or to a scientist, astrophysicist, what the earth's shape is is very important. But to me, I can't even understand what those guys talk about. What matters is I'm on it and I'm living and I'm choosing to love people or I'm choosing to hate people, I'm choosing to follow Jesus, I'm choosing to reject him. What matters is I'm on this earth. If it's flat, it's going along fine with me on it. And if it's round, it's going along fine with me on it. The end is what am I doing on this planet with my life? And then I thought, well, you know, that's kind of the same thing it is when it comes to a topic like the Trinity. In order for me to understand the Trinity, I have to go outside of God. And that's impossible. I can't get outside of him to examine him and say, I know this and I know that. It's interesting that when we went from a, a, a geocentric model to a heliocentric model in the cosmos, that it's around the same time Trinitarianism was starting to pop up and men decided that's what it's called. But I would have to go and examine God from the outside to understand him. And that's never going to happen. So what is important that it that he is described in man-made terms as the Trinity, or that he's described in man-made terms as uh, uh, monog—not uh, monogamy, uh, monotheism, or binity, or one God, or what is it? You know, what matters is: Do I believe in him? Do I seek to understand him? Do I worship him? Do I seek him and his Son? Do I accept that Jesus was the Son of God? And in a way, there's a parallel between those two that we can argue till our faces are blue about certain things, but really we don't personally know. We're just taking things. And so I think that should help step away from the argument of the word and say, do you seek God in truth, in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ, his son? One last thing, Maria, come up here for a minute. Come up here. Come on. <coughs> Uh, Ty just called, Derek, you might have to pull back on this, and he thanked me and, and, and stuff, but we just moved, after 10 years of commuting, we just moved permanently to Utah. Now, this is a Southern California girl, and she had her house down there, her mom's house in California, Huntington Beach, and she let me commute back and forth, and she came up and visited and things, but she and our, the rest of our girls have made the commitment, and our grandsons, this is our home now. This is it. And, and, and it's not without some pain, to be honest, because you have to step out and say, and I know there's people in this audience who have done the same. And people are watching at home. You step out into faith and you say, God, you know, what are we doing? And I know people who have done it. And, and so I just wanted to thank Mary. This is the backbone to uh, things in the ministry, uh, along with all of you guys who volunteered, Derek and Danita and Seth and Kathy, Maggie and Linda Cassie and Wendy and Jed and... Marnita and everybody else, all you guys, the uh, uh, um, uh, Earl and Carl, I started to mention names, now I'm dead, <laughs> Warren and Suzanne and everybody, Larry, everybody out Merle. there, the visitors, Merle, uh -huh. Cassie, Delaney. Cassie Delaney, even the people come from Texas to visit, Gaylene, Richard, <laughs> Diana, all right, I started, Reed, Dave, oh wait, Adam Guyman! He's raising his hands, Adam Guy. Listen, I just want you to know, it's, I just am the guy who does the talking. That's the easy part. There's a lot of people behind this stuff. And I pray that we can unite in the nation, in the world, 
truth seekers, gather in our homes, push away from the materialism, push away from the man-made, the manipulation, push away from the organization, and preach Jesus Christ. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light 